So let's just use the term box out. If we tell them to do that in a game, first of all, by the time they hear us say it, it's too late. And second of all, and this is not going to sound like a large amount of time, but 200 to 300 milliseconds before, if we hear the term box out or jump or pass, it kind of creates this interference effect where our motor control areas of our brain have sent the signal down for us to do this. But then if we hear the coach say, hey, box out, hey, shoot, it's like two cars trying to merge onto a highway. And one of them is going to have to slow down. And so once again, this is not to say that coaches shouldn't coach. But when we tell them what to do while they're in the act of doing it, it can actually constrain their movement. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome mental skills coordinator for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Andy Bass. Coach Bass is here today to discuss words and vocabulary and their effects on performance, learning, and feedback. And we talk repetition without repetition and overcoming the yips and mental freezes during an interesting start, sub, or sit. Unique, an absolute must. The most helpful and highest quality coaching content anywhere. These are some of the comments coaches are using to describe their experience with SG+. From NBA and NCAA championship coaching staffs to all levels of international and high school basketball, SG+, is designed to help curious coaches discover, explore, and understand the what, why, and hows of what the best in the world are doing. Through our easily searchable 750-plus video archive on SGTV, to our live coaches social in Las Vegas, SG Plus is the assistant you would hire if your athletic director didn't already give the stipend to football. For more information, visit slappingglass.com today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Andy Bass. We wanted to start with this, and I know it's something that you're thinking about every day and working on with players and coaches every day. The vocab and the words and the way that we use those in a setting, whether it's a game or a practice or in a giving feedback setting off the court, and really how those things affect performance. You know, that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Unfortunately, not true. Words are very powerful, and particularly the words as coaches that we use. So I'll kind of start broadly with the idea of feedback. I know you use that term purposefully. And I think when we think about motor learning and as coaches, for a long time, it's always been this idea of if I'm talking, the player is learning. There is something to that. And yet I've always liked the phrase, the person that's doing the talking is the person that's learning. As coaches, when we think of feedback, I think we need to really dive into the idea that less is more. And I've said this on a couple other podcasts and some things that I've come across in my own learning is this idea of the guidance hypothesis. And hypothesis I use purposely as well, because in motor learning, there's only one law and it's Fitz law and it's the speed accuracy trade-off. That's another story. But with the guidance hypothesis, there's this idea that, you know, feedback has these guiding properties. We want to tell an athlete, hey, where to put your elbow on a jump shot. Hey, this is where you need to be on the court. And yet, because of that, athletes can become dependent on that feedback. And the more that we provide feedback in practice, 
the more they become dependent on that. And then in the game, we're not out there like, yes, we're on the sideline as coach, but we want the athlete to be their own best coach. So we want to lessen our feedback to let the athlete be their own coach because the more that we provide it, they become dependent on it. And now if I'm shooting a shot and every time I shoot a shot in practice, my coach tells me something, I'm not being a good self-evaluator. And then in the game, if I'm going in a slump or if I'm missing a lot, I can't correct myself properly. So long story short, we want to lessen the feedback that we give in practice and allow the player to self-correct rather than constantly talking, 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 then they don't have us in a game. And we shouldn't be coaching during a game. We should be strategic. We should be tactical, but we shouldn't be coaching movement during a game. And if we do that too often in practice, they can become dependent on that. Coach, can you go a little deeper on that as to why we shouldn't be coaching physical movements in a game? There's another paradigm in motor learning known as crosstalk. And what that basically says is, so let's just use the term box out. Let's just say, telling a player to box out in a game. Well, if we tell them to do that in a game, first of all, by the time they hear us say it, it's too late. And second of all, and this is not going to sound like a large amount of time, but 200 to 300 milliseconds before, if we hear the term box out or jump or pass, it kind of creates this interference effect where our motor control areas of our brain have sent the signal down for us to do this. But then if we hear the coach say, hey, box out, hey, shoot, it's like two cars trying to merge onto a highway. And one of them is going to have to slow down. And so once again, this is not to say that coaches shouldn't coach, but when we tell them what to do while they're in the act of doing it, it can actually constrain their movement in the process. Andy, with then feedback and less is more, what are you telling coaches that they should be aware of when they are going to give feedback? And maybe if we look at like a practice setting, when they have to use feedback, what would you say is let's say the best techniques or ways to give feedback? I'm always going to defer to the expert coach in the room. I am not a strategist. I do consider myself a coach and I know baseball, basketball, football, these different sports, but I'm always going to defer to the coach that has the wisdom in the room. But I would say that number one, you know, try to lessen it as much as possible. And I think the other kind of tactical part of this is there's this other concept in motor learning known as basically a feedback delay interval where if we can pause just one, two, three Mississippi before we say something. So something happens in a drill and you know the player didn't notice something. Wait for a little bit of time to then provide that feedback because then the player is able to proprioceptively and cognitively and perceptually understand what happened before the feedback from the coach comes in because if it happens too quickly, then the player hasn't actually digested the environmental and visual feedback and then the coach has just overridden that and now the player doesn't really understand what happened yes they hear from the coach but it's better if we let them kind of have that time in the environment to digest that coach if i could piggyback on this situation in practice providing feedback and you always hear about question asking and coaching versus telling when to use both how to use them and so in a situation where you just mentioned player makes a mistake in practice, giving those couple seconds of feedback, but then when to pose a question and when to maybe give more direction. I will always fall back on the phrase, a good question is better than a smart answer. And particularly as coaches, coaches, they have to know so much. So it's really hard to integrate all of this. And yet when we think about, let's just pull in some mental health perspectives here, open-ended questions. Okay. Hey, what did you see there? You know, instead of, 
hey, why did you turn the ball over? Or instead of, hey, you know, you we know they turn the ball over, but questions that elicit or solicit a greater answer from the player. So instead of, hey, don't do that, hey, what caused you to do that? The more the player is talking to us after the question, the better the question is, the more open-ended it is. And that is not to say that coaches can't give constructive feedback and tell players what to do. But I think the more that we use open-ended questions where the player has to, I mentioned digesting things from the environment, but also digesting things from themselves. All right, so they just did a drill and they turned the ball over, they made a bad pass and transition, what have you. Okay, we wait for three seconds, whatever it is, two, three seconds. Then we say, hey, what did you see there that made you make that decision? The more that they're talking to us after the question, the better the question is. Andy, I love this discussion because it's always interesting depending on who that player is too and what the mistake is. And I guess that's my follow-up is, okay, the first time they miss it or whatever, and then you ask the question, but then like repeated mistakes (laughs) in the same situation and how that patience level of a coach to want them to perform, I guess now trying to handle that situation with repeat offenders to a similar mistake. Yes. The repeat offender aspect, I would ask myself if I was a coach, okay, what is causing this player to continue to make this mistake? And yeah, of course, there's a time we need to step in and say, hey, look, when you see X, Y is going to happen and you need to go with Y, as in the letter Y in this hypothetical. Once again, I do fall back. I'm going to allow the coach to engage in the art of coaching. They know their players. They know the situation. Also, with repeat offenders, And I'm going to kind of bring in some anecdotal evidence here. I prefer empirical evidence. You know, my background is in science. But I remember when I was in graduate school, I was coaching a youth baseball team and we were really having trouble with cutoffs, cutoffs from the outfield. We were working on it all week in practice. And then we go to a baseball tournament and we're terrible. We just are not running the cutoffs right. And the parents come up to me and say, wow, Coach Andy, you know, what's going on? Like we worked on this all week in practice. And my answer was, I'm not teaching it properly. If a player is a repeat offender, I think we as coaches need to look at ourselves and say, well, how am I teaching this? Or how am I teaching this maybe improperly? Because it does fall back on us. So if we have repeat offenders, let's think about, okay, what drills are we doing? And are they not working properly? And is our feedback not working properly? If a player is continuing to make a mistake, I think for the longest time, it's been the player's fault. Ah, It's our fault as coaches. And kind of on that note, me and Dan were also talking moments in practice or in a season or in a game when maybe the coach has to jump his team. We've all been there where you feel like you need to get your team going. What are your thoughts on tone and raising your tone, changing your tone when delivering a message? Does that really have an effect on, let's say, in this moment of turning your team around or igniting your team? It certainly does. The consistency of the tone is the most important thing. There is nothing wrong with a coach that wants to be Bobby Knight, not necessarily throwing chairs, but that wants to be that kind of person. But you know, we know that fear is not a good long-term motivator, but there's nothing wrong with jumping on our team and being dedicated and disciplined and being hard on them at times. It's the follow-up with that. It's okay, we just stopped practice and I jumped down your throat, either the team or the person, and it's doing that. But then it's after the fact, it's pulling them aside, the player, the team and saying, look, I know it was just hard on you. This is why I did that. The biggest thing I think with players is, you know, I remember playing basketball, my coach jumping down my throat is we want to please our coach, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, but others by their actions. And so if my intention as a coach is to motivate you, 
then that's how I interpret that. But the player is going to interpret my action, which is, wow, coach is really upset with me. So that's okay in the moment. We just need to make sure we follow up and wrap around with, hey, look, this is why I did this. And not letting that kind of thought balloon turn into a different narrative from our players. And as we head down this path a little bit, just on how true confidence comes from a coach to a player and what ultimately I say gives them confidence, but allows them to play freely and within the system that you've devised and all these things that we want as coaches and where that confidence can come from and how coaches, I guess, can help as well. This could be a three hour long conversation. Confidence has been researched heavily. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, obviously, with different coaches, different players. I've always enjoyed the idea of confidence being kind of two kind of metaphors. One is this idea of hunting the small game. And I'm going to definitely give a shout out to my mentor with the Pirates, Dr. Bernie Holiday. Way back in the day when we didn't have complicated and sophisticated societies and civilizations, we weren't going out hunting tigers and bears. We were hunting squirrels and rabbits. And with that being said, it's that idea of finding the small victories. And as coaches, we need to help our players find those small victories, whether it's, hey, that was a really good pass and transition, or hey, you were really focused today during the game. But these process goals, pointing them out and helping players see these small victories, because we don't hunt the small game, we're going to starve. By the time we get to that game-winning shot, you know, that double-double, whatever it is, that's the bear and the tiger. We're too weak to even understand it. Or the other metaphor is kind of like building a fire. We don't build a fire by trying to light a giant log on fire. We start with kindling. We start with small things and build that up from there. And so as coaches, we need to be very dedicated and purposeful in helping our players find those small victories, not small in a pejorative way, small in the sense of, they're process-oriented, and the player can control them every step of the way. The more that we help the players see those small victories, build that fire, the better it is. And to kind of wrap this metaphor up, you know, if we're waiting, our confidence fire is waiting for that game-winning shot, that all-state, that you know, I'm going to go play professionally, that's the equivalent of throwing a giant log on a dwindling fire. And if we do that, that fire is just going to extinguish. So we're not even going to be able to enjoy those really great moments that we think about if we don't build those small victories into that burning fire. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Huddle and their latest product, Huddle Instat. Whether for podcast prep, newsletter ideas, or putting together our weekly short and long form video breakdowns, we rely heavily on Huddle Instat's advanced analytics and extensive content library containing over 460 U.S. and international competitions. For more information on Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. The season is here, but we know that many coaches are already looking ahead at international trips in 2024 and 25. Ourselves, along with a number of former podcast guests, cannot say enough great things about our experiences working with Josh Erickson and his team at Beyond Sports. From handling flights, hotels, game scheduling, excursions, service learning opportunities, and more, Josh and his team provide unmatched service and support throughout the entire trip. To learn more about why more than 650 programs have trusted Beyond Sports, visit beyondsportstours.com and tell them Slopping Glass sent you. Andy, when players come to a coach with anxiety or they're lacking confidence, but they express an emotion and the importance of a coach to validate emotions in their players. You said it. It's validation. And that is 
once again, a cornerstone of mental health in general, we don't have to agree with the action or behavior that led a player to feel that way. And we don't have to agree with the reaction. Pat, if I come to you and I say, I'm feeling really anxious. Oh, no, don't worry about it. You're fine. Like, just have fun. Come on now. I think the importance of validating the emotion and saying, okay, I hear that you're anxious, or it sounds like you're frustrated, or the game last night really took a toll on you. What's really interesting about that, not just from a psychological perspective, but physiologically, the moment that a person validates our emotion, really good things happen. Our heart rate slows down, our veins dilate, and the parts of our brain that are more responsible for like cognitive and conscious thought kick in versus like our amygdala, which is the fight or flight response. So as a coach, the first thing we need to do, a player comes up and says, coach, I'm really nervous. Okay, tell me about being nervous. Sounds like you're nervous. Like, let's listen to them versus, well, it's just a game. Don't be nervous. Okay, well, if I'm the player and I hear don't be nervous, but I'm nervous, so what's wrong with me? So yes, you, you hit it perfectly. The first thing we need to do with players is validate the emotion that they're feeling because we can't argue with that. If they say they're feeling a certain way, they are feeling that way. We cannot disagree with it. And this is probably another potential three-hour long question I'm going to ask you. But right now, so much more as we're learning with mental health of players, coaches, and the coaches being in a position where they're oftentimes hearing firsthand from players in some kind of setting about some of these emotions like Pat just asked you about. And I think you've talked before about just sort of organic check-ins or organic mental sessions where you're not having a big sit down to try to figure these things out, but just sort of things that come up organically and then how those happen. And I guess what you do with those when players are expressing these things. Obviously, mental health is becoming a big thing in sports. And I mentioned how difficult coaching is. And as we go through coaching education from a mental health, motor learning sports perspective, I've heard a couple of, I'm just going to use the term old school coaches, but they've used the phrase, wow, coaching is more complicated now. And I'm like, no, it's always been complicated. We've actually oversimplified it because we think it's just a game. And so as coaches, it is our duty. You know, we're not bound by, you know, lawyers and doctors. They've got insurance and they have to, you know, continue education. But as coaches, we need to make sure that we are understanding of mental health and our players. And yeah, just these organic check-ins. And it's the question after the question. We're always going through the gym or the weight room and we're saying, hey, how are you doing? And the player says, oh, I'm good, coach. You know, doing fine. Hey, how are you really doing? And I think as coaches, we really need to be aware of body language and the tone in which our players are using. And as coaches, we need to be okay asking the hard questions, bringing a player in and saying, hey, come on, what really is going on here? And as a litmus test as coaches, we should be less about our win-loss record and more about how open and willing are our players to open up with us. And so that organic process of 10-minute conversation. The first five minutes are about the player, their family, movies, books, TV shows, hunting, fishing. Really pay attention to that seven or eight-minute mark. Where are they going with it? And that's when the gold happens. That's when, as coaches, we are the true sports psychologist, is the question after the question, how can we get a player to open up with us in a real and process-oriented way? And if I could just follow up real fast on that, because I think this is probably this point, too, where a player does tell us something as coaches we're just not trained for the most part on what to do next or where to take the conversation or how to honestly then help them work through whatever it is that they're expressing and just going back to you then there on that seven eight minute mark when they do start expressing it how we can be better in those conversations sure 
I'm going to go really deep and really heavy here to start off with, just because I feel like this is something that we all need to know. First of all, what I mean by this is is self-harm or suicidal ideation. There are several courses online. They're only an hour that coaches can go through. But if a player starts to mention self-harm or I don't think it's worth it, anything like that, it is our duty as a person, as a human to say, are you planning on hurting yourself? We have to ask that question. Is it difficult? And people listening right now, I'm sure just got goosebumps or chills. The first thing we must do is ask them if they have a plan, if they're planning on hurting themselves. And if the answer is yes, do not leave that player. Whatever's going on in your day is not worth it. Stay with that player until help can arrive, you know, until they, you know, 988 suicide hotline. But with that deep conversation, if anything comes up with a player, we have a duty to ask, are you planning on hurting yourself? Don't beat around the bush. Don't say, hey, you're not planning on doing something stupid, are you? Or, oh man, you know, don't worry about that. Like everything's good. We have to ask the question. And then the other part, I think, as coaches, we should all be talking to someone. Coaches need therapists as well, whether that's through BetterHelp, whatever it may be, or just another colleague. I think the more that as coaches, we have honest conversations about ourselves with others, the better we'll be able to engage with players when they're honest with us. Coach, we want to transition now to another segment on the show that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so for those maybe listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different options around a central topic, ask you one of them to start, one to sub, and one to sit. And so, Coach, if you're ready, we'll dive in with this first question. Let's do it. Put me in, Coach. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. This first question has to do with the yips or mental freezes or physical freezes. And we kind of wanted to look at this from a physical and a mental standpoint, because coaches also can get the yips when it comes to decision-making, in-game, freezing up, things like that. And so we're going to give you three different options. You'll start which one you think would be the best for just pushing through the yips, you know, shooting slumps, poor performance, things like that. So option one is using visualization techniques off the court. Option two is breathing techniques, breathing exercises. And option three is small physical cues when you're feeling the yips or a decision coming on. So for instance, people sometimes will have like a rubber band on their wrist. Maybe that's not the best example or feeling the grass, something, some physical touch to help kind of get them out of that loop. So start, sober, sit, those three options when it comes to yips and mental freezes. Wow. I think I would probably start with visualization, even though that was the one you started with. And that idea of, you know, visualization is also engages the motoric parts of the brain. You know, if we're in a shooting slump, if we visualize ourselves shooting well, there's actually electrical signals sent down to our muscles that kind of creates that more fluid movement. Breathing is wonderful. I think that would be the one that I would sit at first, simply because I think when you got into the breathing technique, the first stage has already happened. And the first stage is understanding there's a problem. If somebody's going through the yips, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that they're going through the yips. The worst thing we can do is just distance ourselves from it because then it gets worse. And by the time we've got to breathing techniques, the player has already gotten to past stage one of something's going wrong. As far as the cues, I would start with the visualization of probably sub in external cues within motor learning. I know you all know this, this idea of an internal versus external focus of attention. Typically, somebody that's going through the yips, a shooting slump, 
and golf, whatever it is, they're very internally focused. They're thinking about how they're moving. The research is pretty synergized on this and that the more that we think about how our body moves, the worse our body moves. So if a player is going through a shooting slump and they're thinking about where their elbow is, you know, how far they're going down, how high they're jumping, they're probably going to be worse at shooting. The more that we can create that external cue of front of the rim or, you know, explode through the ground, something like that. So I would say visualize themselves doing well and then finding that good external cue, something that's not, hey, your elbow's out, your elbow's in. It's more front of the rim, you know, it's side of the backboard, whatever it may be. So I would say visualization, one cognizant external cue, and then breathing techniques afterward. Great answers. I love to start with your start, actually, and the visualization. And just let's say now it's a physical thing. A player is going through the yips, can't make the throw to first base or can't throw a strike or in basketball standpoint. They can't, like they say, make pressure free throws. They're struggling at the line and everybody's watching. Everybody knows it. What visualization techniques are happening that help with that player before they step on the floor? With visualization, there's several aspects from an empirical standpoint to keep in mind. One is to try to make it as POV as possible. So, you know, like you're watching yourself through a GoPro or seeing yourself do it from a first person perspective, you know, it's hard and it takes work. One is to see it in real time within our mind. So not in slow motion, not from several different angles. And the third and hardest one is to have the emotion connected with it. So at first, it may be okay for the player to feel the anxiety and the nervousness associated with hitting a free throw with the game on the line. The biggest thing is just doing it, just having the player go through it and make it as real time as possible. And shoot, even as coaches, if a player is having trouble with free throws, actually strap a GoPro to their head and have them shoot free throws and then have them watch the video and kind of help put them in that moment from a practical standpoint, especially with all the technology that we have. That would be my first suggestion is whatever the player's having an issue with, it's okay to mention the problem. It's okay to say, you're not doing well at this. Let's work on it. Put a GoPro on their head and then have them watch that to help them start to visualize in real time. Coach, if I could just follow up on, in general, how you help players work through pressure, because some, the moment's not too big, they want to perform under pressure. Some, it's harder, they shrink. And those that maybe aren't as good under pressure, you know, your thoughts on how to help them. Absolutely. I'm going to two-part this from a motor learning and sports side perspective. I'm going to start with the motor learning, more scientific aspect. So there is a theory in motor learning called reinvestment theory. And this is the predominant theory of why we choke. Reinvestment theory, motor learning is such bad words, like they could have called it so much better. (laughs) Reinvestment theory says that when pressure occurs, we reinvest in the explicit knowledge that we have about that skill. And by explicit knowledge, I mean, if I'm shooting a free throw in a big situation, when pressure hits, in my mind, I'm going back to, and if a coach has taught me how to shoot a free throw is in, put your elbow here squat down in this way, have your hips at this angle, flick your wrists like this. Well, that's that internal focus that I mentioned earlier. So as coaches, the more that we provide these internal cues and don't just allow the player to self-organize, well, when pressure hits, if they reinvest in this internal focus that we've given them, they're going to choke. But as coaches, if we give less feedback, if we lean into more constraints-led approaches and letting the drill do the talking versus us, 
Well, then there's nothing for them to reinvest in when pressure hits. So they may be less likely to choke if they don't know as much about how their body moves. Like we all talk about athletes being so aware of their bodily movements. I don't like that. I'd rather a player just be able, they don't know why they do it. It just happens because of the way that they move. So I would definitely go with that. And then from a sports psych perspective, it's hard to do, but this idea that pressure is a privilege and that nervousness and anxiety, they are just another form of excitement. I'm going to bring back my mentor, Bernie Holiday with the Pirates. He has a really awesome presentation where he will talk about the difference between excitement and nervousness. And he'll put on the screen a picture of two men on a roller coaster. And they're going down the roller coaster. And one guy has hands in the air. He's really excited. And he's, you can tell that he's laughing. And the other guy has his head in his hands. And you can tell he's just freaked out. But both of them are experiencing physiologically the same thing. They're both, you know, butterflies. They need to poop, puke, or pee. They're sweating. Their heart, heart is racing. <laughs> so it's helping our players renegotiate or navigate the idea that nervousness, while it doesn't feel great, it is a privilege and it's something to be excited about. And to wrap this up as well, there's a wonderful clip of Simon Sinek, who's a motivational speaker, leadership guru, who says whenever he's going out to do a talk, he will say to himself, this is exciting. I'm nervous and this is exciting. That could be just a really great thing for coaches trying to help players do is when you're going out for the game, when warmups are happening, when a free throw is about to happen, hey, this is exciting, right? It builds up over time. Big things have small beginnings. So helping our players understand that nerves don't feel good, and yet this can be exciting. Coach, I'd like to follow up with physical cues. And you mentioned the importance of just having one. And then also with the physical cue itself, is it really just whatever helps the athlete or should it have a specific purpose? You know, you mentioned front of the rim. The first one with the one external cue, I'm probably oversimplifying that. I've always, from a mental perspective, like the riddle, if I handed you an empty water bottle and I said, get the air out of here, a lot of people say, crush it, stick a vacuum in it, blah, blah, blah. Well, the answer is fill it with water. That idea of if our mind as an athlete is filled to the brim with one conscious external cue, it's really hard for other stuff to get in. It's really hard for negative space to get in. So that cue can change over time, but it is good to have one external cue. And from like, what is best for the player? That's where the conversation comes in. Some players may like an internal cue at times, you know, as in like my elbow needs to be here. That's not bad. But work with the player, ask them questions to see what can help them most, whether it be front of the rim, whether it be explode through the floor, even if it's something that's just completely not to do with basketball to get them out of their head. And so with that idea of, you know, an external cue, which is great, which would be front of the rim, or if you're trying to work on their, you know, verticality. Instead of thinking about their hips moving, think about their shorts moving fast. The other aspect of this is this idea of a holistic cue, which is just starting to come into you know, the research paradigm. But instead of when I say feel, I'm not talking about feel as in my hips doing this, my knees doing that. It would be something to the effect of when I'm shooting, I want to think quiet intensity. This started with a colleague of mine, Dr. Kevin Becker, who worked with swimmers. He was working with a swimmer and she wanted to feel easy speed when she was doing her breaststroke. So that can, with an external cue, it can be something outside of their body, like the front of the rim. Or as we ask questions to the athlete, it can be, hey, what do they like to feel when they're playing defense? You know, maybe in order to keep a person from backdooring me, it's, you know, I want to feel that I have this, I'm just making this up, this kind of extensive gaze. 
that's how I want to feel on defense, extensive gaze across the court. So keep it with an external cue or this holistic cue of the feel of the movement. We are always happy to work with companies, coaches, and creators who add value to coaches and the industry. So we're very excited to announce our newest partner and the official presenter of Start, Sub, or Sit, Just Play. Just Play is the premier platform for engaging your team and managing workflow within your organization. Just Play consolidates the platforms you use and integrates with industry-leading video tools to help coaches win in four major areas, teaching, opponent scouting, prospect recruiting, and analytics. So for more information, visit justplaysolutions.com slash slapping glass today. All right, coach, our next start subsit. We'd like to ask you about the development skill acquisition theory of repetition without repetition. So when applying this theory, what you think the coach should be most aware of when applying repetition without repetition theory? Is it the context of the theory? Option two, just the common sense of applying the theory? Or option three, moderation and how much you use the theory? Oh, I do love moderation. Moderation in all things, including moderation. But I'm actually going to go a little more scientific here. And I'm going to push coaches to think context and content of what this means, particularly because I've always fallen back on, even when I coach, physically coach athletes, I'll always fall back on this is the way I've always done it. And that's the worst phrase in the English language. But I think with repetition without repetition, that is such low-hanging fruit for us as coaches to understand what that means from a context and content perspective. We can never repeat a movement pattern. Muscle memory, I'm sorry, not a thing. Muscles don't have synapses. Muscles don't have neurons. Muscle memory is not a real thing. We need to engage in variability as often as possible. There is just never a case where we repeat a movement pattern. Nikolai Bernstein, famous Russian physiologist, proved this way back in the early 1900s. So if we can never repeat a movement pattern, why are we so stuck on this idea of repeti- you know, can try to repeat the perfect jump shot? It's never going to happen. I love watching videos of Steph Curry, Davidson alum here, so huge fan. The way that he goes about practicing dribbling and shooting, he's always, for the most part, doing different things. And repetition without repetition is in trying to put the ball in the basket every time through different ways. Not only is great from a motor learning perspective, but the more that we engage in variation as we move, the better movers will be. And if we have a player that's really stuck in their own head, I know we talked about the yips or they're just really having a hard time. This idea of differential learning. So repetition without repetition. So shoot as many different ways as possible. Shoot off one leg, you know, shoot falling away. That whole idea of, and I remember growing up, it was always go straight up, straight down in your jump shot. Don't lean back, you know, follow your shot. Well, if we train this way where we are varying our movements, it actually lowers our conscious thinking. So it's called the hypofrontality hypothesis. It's dimming our prefrontal cortex. So if we want our players to not think out there, great practice design to have them vary their movements. And so not only are they not thinking as much, they're getting out of their own head by training in these different ways, but this also emits two electrical signals. They're called alpha and theta. These two electrical signals that are emitted when if I'm out on the court and I'm shooting with different basketballs or I'm shooting off my left leg, then my right leg, and then I'm, you know, even if I'm at the free throw line and I'm trying to do a scoop shot, these two signals are also associated with mindfulness and they're also associated with helping quell the activity of our amygdala, which is the fight or flight. 
So the more that we practice this repetition without repetition, we're actually creating more clutch basketball players because then when the game is on the line, that fight or flight response in the fourth quarter is not as high. Interesting. So to start the context, where would common sense and moderation if we kind of complete this game? Yeah. So I think moderation is just, I don't have a good answer for that one. I think that's just the art of coaching. Certainly there are going to be drills where you're going to be trying to do air quotes, the same thing over and over, but with moderation, I'm just going to defer to the coach in the room. And the second one was context. Is that right? Common sense. Common sense. Yeah. Just the coach in the room. And, you know, if you're coaching younger athletes, sometimes you're going to do block practice, more repetition. But I think the last thing I would say with common sense is I don't know if we give athletes enough credit for understanding the fundamentals. I, this is going to be blasphemous. We exaggerate how proper fundamentals are. You know, basketball, we just made up. Fundamentals emerged over time as an, oh, this is how you shoot a jump shot. Well, nobody began basketball knowing that. So I think that we really fall back on the idea of they need to understand the fundamentals. And I think we keep that too far in an athlete's lifespan. They really don't need to know as many fundamentals as we think before we can let them start to engage in variation. You mentioned block training and this varying training. When introducing a new skill to a player or to a young athlete, and I guess maybe within this common sense, how should you approach this repetition without repetition, this varied, when maybe the athlete or the skill you're introducing is so new or unknown to the player? Yeah. And that also brings in another motor learning theory, the challenge point hypothesis, where if we're pushing them too far where they're failing constantly, then they're going to shut down. So yeah, you know, the player needs to have a certain level of competency to engage in this training, but it doesn't need to be as much as I think we think it needs to be. But yeah, of course, you know, if you've got a five-year-old that can barely get the ball up to the hoop, maybe they need to do a little more block training. Maybe they need to just sit in one spot on the court and try to bank it in. So it's just the coach using common sense of how often are they failing and where is their motivation and psychological standpoint at any given point on the court. As a coach who maybe has less patience with failure <laughs> versus a player who is maybe a little bit more, yeah, has a broader band of what is failure. I guess what would you suggest or how judging, okay, this is too much failure. This is enough failure that they need to work on to improve. Dan Coyle, he has a book that talks about this. It's called The Talent Code, where he says there's this bandwidth of like 60 to 80% success rate. I think that's probably limiting it a little much. But let's just take this from a psychological perspective. If us as the coach get really frustrated with a player failing, the player's going to internalize that. And now the player's not going to be okay with failing, and then they're going to shut down when they fail in the game. As coaches, it's actually celebrating when they're not, when I say not doing well, let's just say they're doing a drill and they're really struggling with it instead of, okay, we're moving to something else. You can't do this. Say, hey, look, all right, this is okay. It's okay that this is hard. Let's continue to do this. Now, if it's just really bad and the player's physically shutting down, move on to something else. But as coaches, embrace when a player fails. And I'm not saying, great job, you missed that shot. Well done. Just let it be okay, or just don't acknowledge it. I think players know when they fail. So I think we as coaches need to back off on calling out the elephant in the room at times. The player knows they missed the shot. The player knows they turned the ball over. And so, yeah, I'm kind of getting big picture here, but let's stop calling out failure as often. And let's be okay when it happens. My last follow-up here for me is about honing skills or honing in specific movements. Maybe for baseball, it's really working on you know, a curveball that hits a certain part of the plate or for basketball, it's 
shooting it from a certain spot on the floor that you know your offense is generating for a certain player. And so you want to get a lot of repetitions at that shot or at your pitching, but how you can then add variability so that, okay, they're going to get say a hundred reps and shooting a corner three, but it's not just all the exact same 100 reps, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I have this conversation, especially with, you know, because pitching is such a closed skill versus basketball. I've mentioned constraints and differential learning, but the basic idea of this is random practice. So if you as a coach have this play set up where this player is going to get this dead corner three ready for him, if you have a hypothetical 100 shots in practice that he's going to try, have him shoot 70, but every three or four have him go to a different spot on the court. And that falls back on this idea of kind of action reconstruction hypothesis and random practice. So I'm just going to do this. But if I were to ask you, you know, what is 20 divided by five, you would tell me four. And then if I asked you again, what's 20 divided by five, you'd say four. I ask you again, 20 divided by five, you'd say four. By the third or fourth time, you're not actually doing the math problem. You're just reciting it. That would be like shooting 100 dead corner threes in a row. But if I told you what's 20 divided by five and you said four, and then I said, okay, what's 30 divided by 10? What's 90 divided by nine? Then I asked you again, what's 20 divided by five? You have to reconstruct the problem again in your head. So it would be, if you want them to work on a particular facet of their game, it is okay to make that the majority, but just every third or fourth shot, have them go and do something else or shoot somewhere else in the court, then come back to that dead corner three where they have to reconstruct the problem in their head. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for going through and answering all those questions with us. That was awesome. We've got one last question for you to close the show. But before we do, thank you very much for your time, all your thoughts. They're so detailed. This was a big learning experience for us. So thank you very much today. I appreciate it. Thank you all for letting me go on my diatribes. I hope I was able to add not just some (laughs) kind of art of coaching, but the science of coaching as well here. Absolutely. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Well, I'm probably going to say my PhD in sports psych and motor learning. Philosophically, though, for me, it's wanting to be wrong. And it's looking back on stuff that I do now that I didn't do five years ago. And just the beauty of, oh, wow, I used to think this and now I don't anymore. I used to coach like this and I don't anymore. Yeah, I would say content wise, it's the motor learning perspective. And I know a lot of your listeners probably are aware of things like the constraints led approach and differential learning, ecological dynamics. It's all over Twitter. So I would say definitely the fact that motor learning is becoming more ingrained in sport is fantastic. We need to have an empirical backing along with anecdotal and tradition. But for me, it's I want to be wrong. I want to look back on what I'm doing in 2023 when I'm in in 2027 and say, oh, man, I used to think that. I don't think that anymore. I was just wrong. So for me, it's wanting to be wrong and I'm going to close this out here with another scientific term, empirical falsification. There was a sociologist in the early 20th century named Karl Popper, and he was really leaning into this idea of if you have a theory, you should do everything in your power to try to prove it wrong. So if I think that this is the way to shoot a jump shot, I need to actually try to actively find ways in which I may be wrong. Because if I go out of my way to try to prove a theory that I have wrong, and it still stands up to scrutiny, then I know I have something. But human beings, we have that confirmation bias. So I would say as coaches, whatever pillars you feel like you have that you think are right, go out of your way to try to prove them wrong 
And then if after a year of all your research, if you still feel convicted, then you know you have something. All right, Pat, you and I were just talking with Coach Bass for just a little bit longer. And one of these conversations where we felt like we could have just kept going and going. Yeah. You know, I think before we get in and kind of the backstory of her, as we put together this conversation and where we wanted to go with it, I mean, obviously we settled on just our words and feedback and the role it plays in player performance as a coach. But I think even to that conversation and then another conversation that we got to with start, sub, sit, and I think is really important is there's a ton of these, I don't know, maybe emerging theories is the right, but these theories on just skill acquisition, learning, and you're seeing them all the time. And I know you and me are having tons of conversations about it because they're all very, very good theories, but it's what does it look like in practicality and bringing it to a court and a conversation I think we're repeatedly having like within a time frame of a season and how can you get the benefits of these and kind of taking the theory that can sometimes seem overwhelming, you know, just by the straight definition of it and what it is on paper and then what it actually looks like in application. And I thought Coach Bass was phenomenal in explaining the theory. And then I think as we're going to get through all the anecdotes he explained and what they really mean and what they look like in practicality was overall the most important thing I think that came out of this conversation today. Yeah, I agree. Let's dive in now to that first bucket on just the words, the vocab, feedback, all that, and what it really means. And I'll kick it to you. I wrote down the first thing he said that the importance of less is more with feedback. And I think it's so true. He said the talker is usually the one doing the learning. It it is very true. If you constantly are giving feedback, I think he mentioned the guidance hypothesis, but that the players just become dependent on the feedback. And so in practice, they're used to just hearing your voice and being cued by your voice. But then in a game, they need to be able to react and make decisions on their own. And they're not going to be able to hear your voice. To double down on what you just said with feedback and it being, like you said, less is more. And I think that I followed up with the telling versus question asking. And I think adding to what you just said, I think that's why also there's so much good theory and evidence rooted in the question to asking and how you ask that question to a player then what happens is the player he just said it usually the talker is doing the learning so but when you ask a question and the player is then talking about it they are learning because they're then explaining what they saw and they're giving you good feedback as to cues as to maybe what they're missing or maybe as a coach what you're missing in your teaching because when you ask hey what did you see here or can you tell me what you think the next read is or who you read, whatever it is, if they're not giving the correct read in your mind, then maybe that's, it goes back to you, tells you, okay, what we maybe need to design to help teach more, whatever it is. I just think he was good talking about in general, stopping and orating for five minutes. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not guilty and we've been in practices where you just feel like you're just making the point and you're teaching and you're yeah, like, if I can just tell them this, they're going to get it. Yeah. And we, go on these rants and we're Billy Shakespeare out there. Their just eyes are glazed over. I think that we've all done it and been there. And it's a different feel for a coach to try to not overdo it. I think you just spoke well on the evidence and the reasons behind why it's more helpful most of the time to not overspeak. But I go back to, he was also really good the whole time of going back to the art and science of coaching. And at times when you get to these points where we maybe ask to follow up or in your head as a coach, if you're listening to this thinking, then there's this moment where I do need to tell them exactly what to do. Or I do need to 
mandate this or demand they do it a certain way for whatever it is that you feel as a coach. He kind of left that space to say, yeah, that's why it's an art where yeah. maybe you do need to step in here and that's okay too. And I think he made the important point too, when we have to give feedback is to though allow like a buffer time of whenever the mistake occurred to allow the player or to process and then give them the feedback where he said, like, if we just immediately come in with the feedback again, it's now they're just hearing your words and they haven't really processed their own and worked through it to understand maybe what the problem or what happened and why where like the disconnect was when your feedback comes in, I thought was an important point to make when obviously we have to do some coaching and deliver feedback. Yeah. And I think this is not a miss by him, but one of the things I wrote down would have been interesting to follow up on too is also the certain types of feedback for certain types of mistakes. And there's mistakes that are made. I think of Wes Miller we had on a few months ago, Cincinnati men's basketball head coach. He talked about he's probably the most lax or not lax, but when he said, he talked about mistakes made within your skill set, trying to be aggressive to make the right play within whatever your role is on the team. I think he said he cares like the least in the country about those mistakes, but it's the mistakes made outside of your role or who you are or selfish mistakes or mistakes of character rather than of, you know, trying to do it the right way is where you step in and have different feedback versus a player that's just trying to do what you ask, but is struggling with it. And I think I could have maybe gone deeper on that with him if we had more time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think an important maybe distinction of this feedback conversation too, is we want to limit it when it comes to maybe like these player movements, these player decisions. But of course, as a coach, focusing, I guess, more feedback on tactical feedback and we can do more of our coaching there and trying to correct those problems versus trying to micromanage a player's decision or yelling at them to get in a stance or to box out. Yep. Where again, now it's, there really is no learning going on. They're just mindlessly reacting to what you're telling them. Yes. That's going to be met with failure in a game when they can't hear you and haven't been taught to think. I agree. Moving to start, sub, or sit. We had fun thinking about and coming up with these. These were based off of He's written a couple of great papers, maybe more than that. He's been on some podcasts. He's he's spoken other places really well, and we kind of took bits and pieces other places. But we'll start with the yips and the kind of physical mental freezes. And we related this to shooting slumps or player just not getting through. It made me think a little bit of with Phil Beckner. We talked about the plateaus a little bit and you know, just where a player gets stuck. And the yips, I think, would be an extra added thing where there's a psychological element to it where players having a hard time getting through it. And so I'll once again, I guess, kick it back to you on any takeaways from that first start subset. Yeah, for sure. He acknowledged that it's okay to mention the problem. I think sometimes you're like, do we talk about it? Do we address it? He can't make free throws. Do we address it or we just keep telling him to shoot free throws after practice, you know, dance around the problem? I like that he address that like, yeah, we can mention it. It's fine. It's not the end of the world. And I'll leave it there because then I think we had a good conversation on visualization, but I I did like some of his external cues and his thoughts there, but I'll throw it back to you as far as maybe with the visualization and your takeaways with dealing with yips or these mental blocks. I'll add on to your point about his thought on just discussing it with the player. Cause I think that one, it just like takes the elephant like out of the room in one sense. But I think the added part was that here's a way out. It's not just, hey, man, you're really bad right now. <laughs> yeah, that um, sucks. But it's like, okay, 
you're not shooting well, here's some things that we can help it with, kind of take it off their shoulders a little bit. And I liked, I guess I'll start with sort of the visualization. I think we had a good conversation on that, but I think you and I both went back to the the physical, the, the cues a little bit, ways to just get a player out of their head, I think was that thought for us and what he spoke about. And he also gave some other examples just for physical stuff on the player not overthinking their movements. Like you don't want them thinking about their slide or their movement. You want them just to feel it. And he talked about some other ways to express those things. The feel of something I thought was really good was in that. The holistic cues, yeah. The holistic cues. So like going back to you, I took that the holistic cues are really good within this conversation. Yeah, he mentioned what the swimmer wanted to have feel easy speed, quiet intensity. Good examples of what he's meaning because he said it's not a straight application to everyone, but you want to avoid the internal cues of like he always kept referring like, you know, elbow in, elbow in, external cues, stuff that takes your mind kind of off of the mechanical process or your body can just flow naturally. As he kind of hit on several times, if you start thinking about a movement, you can't do the movement. I think I asked to follow up a little bit about pressure and things like that and that's another i guess technical miss for me i told you right before we hopped on i love discussing the art of pressure and when it comes to performing from a player standpoint but i think too the pressure and decisions of a coach to in crunch time and the decisions you make from subs to play calls all that and that can be a time where we freeze too a little bit there's so much input coming into your brain for a coach in the pressure situations and how you kind of work through those things, I think is interesting too. Yeah, I agree. I'll let you kick off our repetition without repetition question. Your takeaways from this conversation. Yeah, I think that we've had this in spots before our partnership working with Drew Dunlop and Jake Rosen at the pro lane. They're really good at this stuff too. Coach Bass has written about it before. You've seen other places, but it's how do you get quality repetitions into whatever it is you're teaching without it being a straight block rep over and over and over and over again. You know, we're all thinking, hey, just taking straight 100 jumpers from the top of the key. That's not the worst thing in the world. Obviously, there is some benefit to it, but how do you vary it? And how do you get these you know, reps without it being the same thing over and over again? And we took these three examples from stuff he said somewhere in all of his writings and speakings about this conversation, the context, common sense, and moderation. And I think that the start and what he discussed first was to me and you, I think really important as well is when you're devising a way to get shots or reps in a, an action, you know, you want it to be varied enough over and over again, really thinking about the context is really important and not just doing something that's out of context and just looks cool, but doesn't really apply to your team or to your players. And I think he spoke well on that and he gave some theory too, which was good. It was important. So what I wanted to find out was excited to hear him talk about just within this context and this repetition about repetition is understanding the skill level of your athlete and when to start varying their training and when block training is necessary in order to help progress the athlete along and maybe, like I said, introduce a skill and so they can grasp what they're trying to work on before you just start varying it to such a degree that was really where i guess at times i get the confusion and applying this and what it means appreciate his thoughts there and then i think too the main purpose of this conversation was what's it look like in practicality and i loved your follow-up question because we all have like a set a system when we do skill the belt like we break down our offense and like we know we're going to get 
this shot or these are the shots we want. So we want to, of course, practice them, but how to get the most efficient training out of it or within this reps without reps. And I love the example he gave where it's like, okay, if you know you're going to get corner shots, those are still going to be the majority of your shots. But then every third or every fifth, just mix it up, have them go shoot somewhere else and then come back. And again, the anecdote he gave with the math equations, if you just keep asking the same equation over and over, you're not processing the problem. You're just repeating the answer without really being aware of what you're doing. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed your follow-up and then him explaining this theory in practical terms. I'm just glad he didn't actually ask us to answer the math questions. Yeah, he kept them pretty simple. I was getting nervous. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're the math guy between us too, but I could do those. But if he went any deeper, (laughs) I struggle. He kept it pretty block, I think. (laughs) He did, yeah. But I'll just kind of wrap it all up here because I think we can keep going down. But to your point, that was the most important, I think, thing for us is how do you get these reps in your system? And like my follow-up, I want this guy or girl to practice these corner shots or this spot because that's what we get a lot. And how do you vary it? The thing he gave, I think, is just something that's really a good takeaway. And then I think it also, you don't have to use that exact drill, but just a way to think about, okay, if I'm a coach listening to this, I want to add some variability. It's like a mindset of, all right, I can just add those little things, those little tweaks, and you're kind of getting a better result based off of what he said. Well, I gave a couple of my misses kind of sprinkled throughout. Anything else to add from your standpoint? He mentioned at the very end, and then we ended up having a small conversation afterwards, but he talked about just basketball being an open skilled sport versus, I mean, he was referring to pitching being a closed skilled. I wish I kind of just quickly followed up on that. To add to your point, I think that's one of the interesting things when you talk about sort of the, I don't want to sound overly nerdy here, but the empirical scientific evidence, the approaches to a lot of these things, there have been a lot of studies that are really good studies, but they take place in isolation to where it's like studying a specific skill or a specific movement. And it's really good for like, say, a closed skill thing or like for pitching or like a swing in golf or even a free throw or a shot. I think for you and I, we're always interested in, well, but there's so much added complexity with basketball where it's open, where that shot's coming off of a decision that another person made before that shot. And it it's not going to be the same every single time. So there's so much variability in the skill itself, but then how that skill fits into a team and then how that team plays off of each other. I mean, it just gets more and more complex because of the nature of basketball. And I think that's what's the art of coaching and why we enjoy it. But I think just going deeper down that rabbit hole for us, trying to figure those things out and talk about those things more, I think are helpful. Yeah, I agree. Well, we will thank Andy again for coming on and for being such a great guest. Pat, if there's nothing else, we'll start wrapping this up. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>